Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Stossel. On today's episode, we're discussing adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. We're joined by Dr. Glenn Schiraldi, author of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook. He has served on the stress management faculties at the Pentagon, the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, and the University of Maryland School of Public Health, where he received the Outstanding Teacher Award and other Teaching Service Awards. His 14 books on stress-related topics have been translated into 17 foreign languages and include the Self-Esteem Workbook, the Resilience Workbook, the Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Sourcebook, and World War II Survivors, Lessons in Resilience. Dr. Sheraldi has trained high-risk groups such as military, police, and firefighters, mental health professionals, and laypersons around the world on various aspects of stress, trauma, and resilience. His research at the University of Maryland has found that resilience skills training increases resilience, happiness, self-esteem, optimism, and curiosity while reducing anxiety, depression, and anger. He is the founder of Resilience Training International, www.resiliencefirst.com, which teaches people how to prevent and recover from stress-related conditions such as PTSD, depression, and anxiety, while optimizing mental health and performance under pressure. Glenn is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, West Point, and a Vietnam-era veteran. His doctoral degree is from the University of Maryland. He and his wife have recently completed four years of serving as leaders of an addiction recovery group. Hi, Glenn. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be with you, Cassie. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. I thought we could start our conversation off with talking about what are ACEs and why are they such a big problem? Well, back in 1998, the first study was conducted by two medical doctors uh, named Vince Felitti, who had access to 17,000 records in a HMO, basically a doctor's office where regular people came. And he teamed up with a CDC researcher named Robert Anda, and um, they looked at the 10 most commonly reported toxic childhood events. Now, this was a middle-class, educated, employed, health-insured group. So there are many higher-risk groups. But what they found in this particular group in San Diego, that the most common 10 uh, childhood adversities predicted all sorts of psychological, medical, functional problems. And the original 10 ACEs, now this has been expanded in years uh, since, were any kind of uh, abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, two kinds of neglect, emotional and physical, and then household dysfunction, which included losing a parent to divorce or separation, domestic violence, living in a household where someone was on uh, drugs or uh, suicidal, mentally ill, or incarcerated. Now, those are the only, the original 10, and there are many more. For example, in research in the last 23 years, we found that other things, obviously, like any kind of sexual abuse from anyone, date rape and so on, uh, loss of any family member for death, for uh, deportation, for deployment, mother's stress, you know, having a partner that's abusive, for example. And basically what they found is in the original research and research since, pick a psychological disorder 
from depression to PTSD to anxiety, ADHD, self-esteem, suicide, smoking, and then a whole range of uh, medical problems. Again, if you just pick a medical problem, it's probably predicted by adverse childhood experiences. And then functional problems like trouble with jobs, earning, keeping jobs, multiple marriage and divorces. And what they found was that ACEs predict these problems in a stepwise uh, manner, which is to say that once your ACEs get to be four or more, the likelihood, the risk of developing these problems typically goes up two to five times, even higher for certain things like suicide and ADHD and and uh, drugs. If you have six or more ACEs, the risk of dying 20 years earlier increases, which is interesting because you find a similar figure with cops who have a lot of ACEs and we don't really talk about childhood vulnerabilities. But in a nutshell, the, the more ACEs we have, the more likely we are to suffer well into adulthood if we don't intervene and, and change that original wiring from childhood. When you mentioned these these ACEs scores, can you talk about how someone might find out how many ACEs they have? Yeah, there's a, a standardized test. Um, it's in the workbook that uh, Flitty and Anda developed. And you just check, yes, this happened, or no, it didn't. You add up the yeses, and that gives you your ACEs score. Uh, so again, there's kind of a linear correlation between ACE scores and suffering. But especially once you get into the neighborhood of four or more uh, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And Glenn, you've spent over 40 years researching and teaching people about stress, trauma, and resilience. How has your experience informed your work, inspired your work, and how did you get to work on ACEs? I graduated from West Point, and, and I was an officer in the Army during the Vietnam era. And I saw friends coming home from the war with post-traumatic stress disorder, had no idea how to help. And uh, after my five years of active duty, I, I taught in the public schools for three years and saw kids suffering from you know, suicide and, and rape and abuse and parents divorced. And you could see it. But again, I had no idea how to help. And so I, I ended up going to the University of Maryland for my doctoral program that had a very good stress stress management track. And back then, this was in the 80s, um, we talked about stress biomedically from the head down. In other words, you get physical arousal, and here's how you reduce the arousal. And even though we talked about mind-body connections, we didn't really talk about stress-related mental illness, which drives the arousal. So I started researching and writing books on stress-related problems like depression and anxiety and PTSD was a five-year project. Uh, Self-esteem was a biggie because that is closely intertwined with trauma and depression and anxiety. And then the most recent book was this workbook called The Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook. And all the studying I've done kind of comes together for this one, because what we typically do is we'll say, okay, you're in combat and let's talk about your combat trauma, or you've been raped, let's talk about the recent rape, which might have happened when you're in your 20s, and given much less attention to these underlying uh, root causes of much adult suffering. 
the joy in writing this workbook is it's it's brought together so many healing elements that I was able to learn when I worked in the stress managed faculties at the university and the Pentagon and a foundation that works with high risk groups like firefighters and cops and, and military. And uh, what I find is that what works for that group works for just about anybody because war, combat, high stress situations is a metaphor for life. And we learn so much by studying people who've, you know, come out of these traumatic experiences, whether it be rape or sexual abuse or, or combat, police work, and so on. Absolutely. And you mentioned a few of the, the mental health consequences of unresolved ACEs. Can you talk about some of the physical health consequences of not resolving those? Yeah. It, it turns out that ACEs predict things like obesity or uh, chronic pain, sleep disturbance, diabetes, a range of autoimmune disorders like MS and rheumatoid arthritis, respiratory disease, Alzheimer's, even heart disease and cancer. Fractures from accidents go up. And my guess is that list is going to be much longer the more we study this because just about everything that's been studied seems to increase after exposure to these childhood experiences. One thing I found interesting while reading your book is you talked about core beliefs. And I wanted to ask a question about how how do ACEs impact someone's core beliefs? There's so much to that question. Let me try to um, explain the principles. The brain develops in a very interesting way. Uh, between the last trimester of pregnancy and year three, now bear in mind that ACEs are typically defined as age zero to 18. But if you particularly look at the last trimester of pregnancy to the first three years, and the way the brain develops. So most of Western psychology says, you've got a problem, let's talk about it. Tell me how you're feeling. Tell me what you're thinking. That is a left brain process. The left brain thinks verbally, and it recalls memories consciously, and most of the time fairly logically. The only problem is the left brain is not fully functional, fully online in the first three years of life, but the right brain is. It's fairly well developed in the last trimester and, and through the first years of life. Childhood trauma from those years resides principally in the right brain, and the right brain takes in memories visually, like in images. This is a big one. Most trauma turns around images that are stored in the right brain, which has strong connections to the emotional brain, the parts of the brain that experience and regulate bodily sensations, uh, like how do I feel in my gut? Um, it takes in sensual, uh, sensory uh, input. The right brain oversees a felt sense, like Somebody may have a sense of dread and fear and, and self-loathing and have no idea where that comes from because memories in the right brain are typically stored non-verbally and often beneath conscious awareness. So I hope I'm making this clear, but, but people imprint memories in the earliest months of life and those imprints 
gets stuck in the right brain and play out down the road, these old memories running the show, typically well into adulthood, unless we learn different ways to rewire the brain. So typical Western psychology will say, okay, well, you have self-loathing. What are you thinking? Well, I hate myself. I don't like myself. Nobody likes me. And those are important, but but early childhood memories get implanted more in a felt sense. And you can't typically come at it, at least not initially, by talking about it, by reasoning people out of it. How many people do we know that uh, are attractive and well-liked and even successful, and yet they have this sense of, of, of loathing and self-dislike? that don't respond to reason. It doesn't matter maybe how many times you tell someone, you know, you're capable, people like you. If someone doesn't feel that at a gut level, you know, that's right brain processing, then reason alone typically doesn't work. And so we've got to come at these imprinted memories uh, from a body-up approach that is starting with the body, soothe the symptoms, that allows the survival brain, the emotional brain to calm. That allows the right brain to calm. And if, if you know, healing progresses, we can then access these memories and talk about them. And if we can't talk about them, there are many wonderful techniques to get at those memories and soothe them in the absence of telling the story, in the absence of talking. I think that stuff is so interesting. Thank you for explaining it. And Glenn, why is it so important to spread the knowledge about ACEs and, and who, who will benefit from this knowledge being out there? I think it's important to know because when we're walking around, we see people suffering. They have no idea how to heal and come to find out that the approaches to healing make sense. They are doable. They are effective but they're not usually the typical way. You know, if I pad my resume, that doesn't necessarily heal this, this felt sense, this uh, the sense of dread or, or self-dislike. And so there are many parents who are walking around thinking, how do I fix my kids? Well, we know that if we can fix the parent, and I'm using that term loosely fix, um, but if we can improve the health and heal their traumas, they become better coping models for the kids. Their epigenome changes and the kids' epigenome changes. We know, for example, that uh, the way the child develops, the child develops genes that determine how the brain develops in the early, earliest years of life, but they also inherit an epigenome from their parents. An epigenome sits right beside the uh, DNA uh, chain. And depending upon how that epigenome is shaped, that will determine to a great degree how the genes are expressed and hence how the brain develops, whether the brain develops to be on high alert or to be calm. And so uh, the the adults shape the children in lots of different ways. And when those children reach adulthood, they are often going to repeat the patterns, pass down the epigenome, and this becomes kind of a vicious cycle until someone becomes a transition person because they learn how to break the cycle, how to rewire the brain, how to learn skills, how to cope with 
haunting memories and and uh, symptoms that are recalled beneath conscious awareness and you go i have no idea where that came from because the right brain often is uh, below conscious awareness but once you start realizing that that these symptoms in adulthood make sense when you know the origin and you know there are ways to treat those symptoms and rewire the brain uh, to take those old programs that were imprinted, you know, anywhere from three months before birth to especially 18 months to three years. But then even after the first three years, anytime a person is traumatized, the left brain goes offline. It says the brain is saying, uh, I don't have time to think or or speak. And so I'm just going to emote, meaning feel and move. Uh, and so, again, it's very hard to talk about memories imprinted when someone is overwhelmed with traumatic stress. And so you don't come at it by talking about it logically. You come at it from from a bottom-up approach, which has been developed in recent years. And, are, and these approaches are very helpful. Well, it seems like a good promise that if people are able to begin working through their ACEs, that they can break the cycle with the next generation and leave them to have better off than they had it. Yeah, that's that's the hope of healing. That's why I love this uh, this topic. And, you know, once I started to get the my arms around the, the uh, stress-related conditions like depression and anxiety and that, you know, I started writing about trauma and teaching people about it. And then this is kind of the last piece of the puzzle. How do you how do you resolve and settle those childhood memories that are running the show in adulthood? Absolutely. And and what is keeping us from healing those aces? Well, a number of things. I think one thing is we think I'm an adult now, I should be able to get past the past. And often we can, but a lot of times we don't because we don't have the skills. You know, they're not the skills you learn in school. Just study hard and, and think logically. You know, I heard the the comment that anger management, for example, works really well until you're angry. And that's a nice metaphor that once those old emotional memories start kicking in, logic doesn't fix it. But other strategies can and often do, especially if we know how trauma is treated. Earning your continuing education hours doesn't have to be a painful experience. The right course can open your mind to new possibilities, increase your confidence, and hand you powerful tools to transform your clients' lives. Praxis Continuing Education and Training teams up with some of the brightest minds in mental health to provide cutting-edge, evidence-based training for practitioners. You can learn firsthand from experts like Stephen C. Hayes, Kelly Wilson, Robin Walzer, Kirk Strausel, and many others. Find your next training at PraxisCET.com. That's PraxisCET.com. So I think here comes the the biggest question of our conversation today is, is how do we begin to heal these wounds of childhood? Well, there's an eight-step model that I've developed for healing. And the good thing about it, that may seem a little daunting, but once we learn the healing steps, these are steps and skills that help us cope with life in general. So it's a wonderful learning pathway. The first four steps have to do with uh, preparing the brain to heal. Uh, the next two steps ha- deal with 
reworking the memories that are stored primarily in the right brain. And then because life is about more than healing, more than about more than suffering, the remaining steps have to do with creating joy, creating a happy life, a satisfying life that's relatively free of you know baggage from the past. So we could talk forever about these these skills, and there are so many that are that I've tried to outline in the book in a way that people can use these skills, knowing that many people will not seek professional help, which, by the way, is really important. I think if somebody's been overwhelmed with traumatic stress, by definition, it means it overwhelmed our coping resources. And so it's good to have a trauma specialist. But for a variety of reasons, people uh, won't get needed therapy because of cost or stigma or ignorance of of what happens. Or sometimes it's just really hard to find a good, well-trained trauma specialist. And so I wrote this book primarily to help people know what can I do myself and secondarily for mental health professionals who will use these principles in the healing process. And then for lots of other people for, you know, pastoral counselors and, and, uh, and coaches and, and teachers, um, you know, sometimes we won't be the carrier of the healing skills, but we can point people to the right help and say, I understand your problem and know that there are ways to heal and you don't have to suffer with this forever. So the basic principle here is when we are in what I call a resilience zone where stress arousal is neither too high nor too low, everything works the way it's supposed to. The left brain is online, so we're capable of thinking and talking uh, arousal when it rises for stress, the nervous system is balanced, and so it brings it down. Everything's working together in the body, and all parts of the brain are online. But once we get traumatized, 70% of the time, people kick up into a hyper arousal where we're over aroused. And that's where the left brain goes offline because of the immediacy of survival. Cortisol increases in that causes all sorts of problems. And then if you're stressed long enough, then you go into the hypoarousal where we start to shut down, numb out, freeze, dissociate, all these other problems. And the good news about seeing that model, people realize, well, I'm not weird. I'm not crazy. It's just, there's a biology of trauma. And once trauma has kicked me out of the well-functioning resilience zone, there are ways to get back into the resilience zone where healing and logic starts to starts to occur. And so the first strategies uh, have to do with regulating dysregulated arousal because it's the dysregulated arousal that causes so many of these psychological and medical problems and, and functional problems. So they're body-based um, approaches that I outline in the workbook. And these are developed by trauma experts like Bessel van der Kolk, Pat Ogden, Peter Levine. So for example, if somebody has been raped and they're talking to a counselor, trying to tell their story, and there's some merit to putting words to fragmented traumatic memories, um, but often people have a hard time talking about what's stored in the nonverbal right brain. And so 
if they start getting really upset, a, a skilled clinician will say, I tell you what, how about, I notice you're getting tense in the shoulders and you're getting uh, white in the face. How about let's put the storytelling aside, the left brain verbalizing, and let's work on the body. Let's just calm the body so we can get back into the resilience zone. For example, a very simple, powerful skill is kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, where you just put a hand on a wrist, say, and figure out a way that feels good to squeeze it and notice what happens when you do. Track your body. All of the body-based bottom-up skills involve tracking because when we track what's going on in the body, that calms the body. It gets us back into the resilience zone or all parts of the brain, including uh, the parts that help us feel connected to our emotions and ourself and so on. So squeeze in a way that feels good. Whether, notice whether it's a, a, a deep or a, a shallow squeeze, a gentle soothing or a mechanical, quick and slow and so on. Track what happens when you release, move your hand up your forearm an inch, do it again, track, do it again, moving up your hand and releasing and track, move your hand down. That can be a very simple way to calm when traumatic memories start to uh, arouse you or everyday stress. You might also say to the person who'd been raped, how about stand up, get a good solid base and resist. Just in imagery, pushing against an imaginary wall or even a real wall, push from your strength to your core and track how that feels in your body. And sometimes that helps us to just regain uh, our sense of control, our ability to regulate our arousal. Once we've learned those kind of skills, and there are many of those body-up skills, uh, bottom-up skills, we then learn skills to regulate emotions because strong emotions will maintain physical arousal. And we've learned, for example, that mindfulness skills, when you bring compassion to your suffering rather than try to kill them with painkillers or addictions, that that uh, the PTSD symptoms, the pain goes down, the anxiety, the depression goes down, shame even goes down, cortisol goes down. And so a lot of the symptoms that cortisol causes, like uh, immune system problems and sleep problems, get better. And I was thinking the other day, you know how when you, you grow up, you hear the term kiss it better? There is evidence that when you show kindness and love, that oxytocin is produced and that counters the effects of, of cortisol. There are eye movement, uh, eye movement skills and, eye, and tapping skills, which are developed by trauma researchers that can be applied in a self-help way just to calm down. Michael Singer has developed a, a pass-through technique that's a very nice application of the basic mindfulness ideas, which says, you know, we're deeper than our thoughts, our emotions, our physical symptoms. Just watch them, hold them in kindness, let them pass through your heart, and then um, shift your awareness to something something pleasant. Uh, Self-compassion is as effective as mindfulness is when you add to mindfulness, where you're just aware in a kind way without trying to fix anything. Just notice, but then add to that self-compassion statements like, this is a moment of suffering. 
everyone suffers. I'm not alone. May I bring kindness to this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. That can be a very effective way to calm down. And and we're all we're going to use all of these skills later uh, in the comprehensive healing approach um, when we try to rework our haunting memories from childhood. So at this point, we've learned skills to control physical arousal, strong emotions, and pleasant emotions. And then we start to get into uh, brain care because a lot of times in therapy, people overlook the hardware, the physical condition of the brain. Um, But if we're going to rewire old memories, it's really important to optimize brain health function number of neurons, uh, the ability of the neurons to reach out and make uh, connections to other neurons for the forming of new neural programs, new neural pathways. And so there are nine different brain keys that uh, optimize the, the brain hardware, the health and functioning of the brain. So the big three, the one that you know, we've heard this for a long time, but now we have such a better understanding. The big three are Mediterranean diet, or I should say a Mediterranean style diet, because there's different ways to adapt these principles. But the Mediterranean diet we now know decreases inflammation, which is uh, so critical in uh, diseases of the brain and and, and psychiatric uh, illnesses. And basically what the Mediterranean diet, when this has been studied in in America and lots of different countries, it is high in plants, like two to five cups of fruits and vegetables, more vegetables than fruits for most people, extra virgin olive oil, uh, seafood, sometimes substituted with eggs or chicken, processed foods, red meats are minimized, and this ties into what we now understand about the microbiome. There's a hundred trillion microbes that exist in the gut. And we know that when the microbiome is in balance, such that the good guys, the good bacteria outweigh the bad guys, that the gut communicates to the brain, producing 90% of the serotonin that is so important for self-esteem and reducing depression and helping people sleep. We know that you can feed the good guys in the gut by the very things that are in the Mediterranean diet. That is fiber, uh, fermented foods like fermented cheeses and kefir and uh, sauerkraut. Exercise, stress management also helps. Uh, Hydration is really important to keep the brain uh, functioning well. I think a, a word of about energy drinks is really important. The army did some research on energy drinks, hoping that we could get more out of sleep deprived people. And what they found is in the soldiers who were having two energy drinks per day, it, it created just the opposite of what was hoped for fatigue and sleep problems, anxiety, depression, anger, even post-traumatic stress symptoms increased And even one a day or one a week, somewhere in that range, created many of those same symptoms. So uh, highly caffeinated drinks don't seem to to, uh, fill the bill that we hoped it would. Uh, Sleep is critical. We're a sleep-deprived nation. Seven to nine hours, what most of us need and few of us get. 
exercise we now know uh, reduces inflammation and infection every time we contract our muscles. And a randomized control trial, the gold standard in research, found that with sedentary uh, adults with mild cognitive impairment, if they simply ate a Mediterranean-style diet and exercised aerobically three times a week, they reversed their brain aging by nine years. So that's huge re, uh, responses with very little uh, effort. The other steps have to do with reducing toxic neurotoxic chemicals like pesticides, things we walk through the grass and pick up on our shoes, anticholinergic meds like just over-the-counter and prescription sleep medicines, benzodiazepines for tranquilizers block a very critical neurotransmitter. And so the bottom line there is if you're taking anything, talk to your pharmacist, talk to your doctor. If it's anticholinergic, see if you can use a non-anticholinergic uh, alternative or minimize a dose or try non-pharmacological interventions like sleep aids, non-pharmacological sleep aids work as well or better without the side effects. And of course, the big one is managing stress. And that's what most of the book is about. But getting out in the sunshine for early morning uh, exercise, walking through greenery and, and uh, places where, where there's water, walking with a sense of awe, like look at that beautiful horizon or that beautiful tree, not counting beats and not worrying about uh, distance and, and steps and so forth, uh, reduces cortisol. Then we start to really get into the serious preparation to modify those old memories. And that's where imagery comes in. And let me just pause here, see if uh, Cassie, you have any questions or comments so far. Yeah, first I want to say what feels really hopeful is out of every one of these interviews I've done, which is, you know, upward of 30 now, there is a common thread of these very common sense things that do really impact the brain and mental health, including the exercise, the sleep, the eating. And I think that is really hopeful because those are changes you can implement immediately and begin to work on. Um, so I really appreciate that, that full body approach. And then you were about to mention imagery. And I was really curious after reading your book, why imagery is so powerful because it is a huge chunk of the, of the book. Yeah. So Imagery is targeting the right brain, which is where most of this stuff is playing out. And so what imagery does, it doesn't yet directly modify the imprinted memories from childhood. But what it does is it creates new neural pathways, positive pathways that can, can help uh, strengthen the brain and, and prepare us to weave those positive memories into the new neural pathways when we eventually change those old childhood imprints. This is basically two ways to do that. There is imagery to rework attachment experiences. You know, if a child is lucky and they, they had a caregiver who communicated love and protection and interest and joy in being in that child's presence, then they form what's called secure attachment. But insecure attachment teaches just the opposite. The child, again, non-verbally in the earliest months of life can pick up on a look of disgust by the caregiver, a look of anger, and is not old enough to say, well, that's just mom having a bad day or dad having a bad day. 
they internalize that as a felt sense. I'm not wanted, I'm not loved, I'm not good enough. And so imagery starts to create a parallel pathway along those negative neural pathways. And so attachment imagery, um, you can go back to in utero and say, can you imagine just being in the mother's womb? You know, the mother's at peace, she's humming, she's at peace with her life, and that gives you a sense of peace in your life. You can do attachment imagery in the earliest months of life where you imagine being cradled by a loving caregiver. And not so much the words, but the tone of the voice that the child picks up from the caregiver, uh, the skin-to-skin contact, feeling safe, feeling enjoyed. You can create that in imagery because anything is possible in imagery. There's another kind of imagery that takes the uh, older, wiser adult who then visits the newborn and provides what that newborn needed. And it's kind of an interesting approach to that. So you take the older person, like you or me, grown up, and maybe we think, well, if I visit that child, gosh, I've made mistakes, and who am I to be helping my younger self? And the child doesn't care about any of that. All they care about is they feel safe and protected and enjoyed. And think about how that realization impacts us as older adults. And so you go back to that suffering child, and you provide what was needed. Maybe it's an embrace, maybe it's reassurance or physical protection. And then you can carry that child forward, knowing that there's at least one person, yourself, basically, this is all about one person who will take care of you and, and, and uh, and nurture you. So there's lots of different imagery exercises that are described uh, in the workbook. And some of those have to do with uh, reworking shame. And that comes a little bit later, though. And so there's a technique that's been developed called a float back strategy, which is really, I think, brilliant. What you do is you start by soothing and settling recent memories that trigger the old traumatic childhood memories. So for example, let's say a woman gets in an argument with uh, her spouse and his anger reminds her of her critical abusive father. And so what you do is you go to the argument and say, okay, let's just soothe and settle that using all the skills the person has acquired so far, self-compassion, mindfulness, uh, eye movements, tapping, and, and so on. And once that is reasonably soothed, you say, okay, now let's just trace back to the earliest time when you can remember feeling similar bodily sensations and emotions. Again, we're we're going in the bottom-up way, dealing with what's going on in the body and the lower brain, and go back to that early memory. um, And you can throw images in there, which is, you know, a face you saw and a, a scowl and so on and soothe and rework that using all your skills that you've learned. You know, tell yourself this is just an old memory. Use your tapping. Uh, You can even time trip back to there where the older, wiser you meets and has an affinity for that younger, vulnerable child and provides what that child needed. And then you track what's going on, having done all that. The other way to do a float back is to start with a a shaming word like inadequate. And just that word may stir up feelings and you go, 
where is that coming from? Well, you soothe the feeling and the, the related sensations, and then you trace back to the first time where you felt those sensations and soothe that again using your old uh, healing skills. So those are some two tangible skills that can help to, to get to the root of the problem. And then the whole next section of the book uh, deals specifically with imprinted shame and skills to to counter that shame. I think what's interesting about that process is it seems to require a curiosity for you to explore where those things are coming from as they come up for, for you. And a nice promise that you can sort of through this imagery and through this work, go back and and reparent your inner child in a way that is soothing and comforting. Yeah. And I used to hesitate to say this because it sounded unscientific, but love is what heals. Um, and we know biochemically what love does in terms of oxytocin and so on. And so we're not talking about some touchy feely stuff. We're talking about well-documented scientific approaches to healing. You know, shame and, and harsh criticism doesn't work. We know that from the research. But encouragement, kindness, love, that does. And that's a skill to learn. And it's a skill that a lot of people don't grow up with. And so it, it does take some effort, some time, and some kindness. You know, I need a little time to learn this and go easy. Definitely. And I feel like I should have you back on a whole episode to talk about shame because I, I find that really interesting. But Glenn, are there any bright sides to ACEs? Well, the bright side is suffering's not all bad. And and we can learn as we heal, we become resources for others. You know, I can help you so much better. I personally feel like having researched and taught this for so long that I'm so much better able to help people. And so we, we become better. Sometimes we become, uh, become kinder, more empathic. And uh, the, the good side of this is these are learnable skills. It's not, you know, suffering is not a reflection of who we are. It's maybe just a signal to learn some great new skills that I never learned. And I think what's wonderful now is we now know some really good ways to help people. You know, PTSD wasn't even formally uh, diagnosed until 1980. The diagnostic criteria came out and we back then had very little idea how to help people heal from traumatic memories. And now in a relatively short period of time, we've got lots of really effective strategies that are wonderful. Yeah, it's very hopeful. What advice do you have for someone sort of beginning their journey to this recovery? Um, I think I sort of touched on it so far to just realize that this is all about skills that perhaps you haven't learned yet but can learn and get quite good at it. Uh, it's not a reflection of character weakness, but it is a reflection of, hey, there's some skills that I could really use. You know, if it were a golfer who needed to learn skills, they'd get a new coach and, and learn some skills that, that maybe remedied flaws in the swing, say, that, that he wasn't aware of. Um, I, I want to say one thing about getting professional help. There are new treatments that are very, very good. And some of these don't take years of therapy like Freudian approaches do. There's one that I'm particularly impressed by, and that's called accelerated resolution therapy. And it works with the right brain. It, basically, all of the principles we've talked about, you know, it starts with the image. You know, one of the assumptions is that trauma 
resides most of the time in an image, not words, not thoughts, but in a right brain image. And it starts by bottom up. Let's let's uh, process and settle the physical sensations and the emotions. And then let's take that image, because every time you bring up aspects of an image and all of its associated uh, sensations and symptoms, the brain can modify that image. If you just leave it stuck in the right brain deeply, nothing changes. But if you bring up the image to awareness, soothe it with eye movements, and then uh, help a person erase and cover and replace that image, and then help them envision a new life of relative normalcy, uh, a satisfying life, uh, a skilled Art therapist, accelerated resolution therapy can do that often in less than five one hour sessions and often in one or two sessions. Now that, you know, may be more complex for, you know, longstanding trauma, but it's the research so far is very, very encouraging. If I were going to recommend one type of therapy, that would be great. And then those skills we've talked about so far, all the skills we've talked about so far, buttress what happens in that therapy session and gives people lifelong skills. Yeah, wonderful. And as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, and I'll just say it again. And I love to say this, that you don't have to suffer for decades with traumatic memories. Um, there is help, many skills that you can do on your own many skills that can be taught by a, a, a skilled trauma specialist in terms of mental health professionals. There is hope on the horizon. I think that's so wonderful to know. You know, think about what our loved ones have gone through in terms of drug addictions and and uh, sleep problems and nightmares, you know, that are driven by these unresolved traumatic memories now we're starting to get a grip on how to heal from these memories. And that's really good news. Yeah. Thank you so much, Glenn. This was such a great conversation. I think a lot of people will learn a lot. I know I did. Well, thank you, Cassie. Thanks for inviting me and giving me a chance to share what I love to, to share. We're all a product of our childhood, and if you're like most people, you have experienced some form of childhood trauma. Adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, are at the root of nearly all mental health disorders, including depression, anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD, and ADHD. Memories associated with ACEs imprint on a child's brain and can manifest themselves mentally and physically throughout adulthood, even decades after the traumatic incident. So how can you begin healing the deep wounds of ACEs and build strength and resilience? In this innovative workbook, trauma specialist Glenn Chiraldi presents practical, evidence-based skills to help you heal from ACEs. In addition to dealing with the symptoms, you'll learn to address the root cause of your suffering, change the way your brain responds to stress and the outside world, and soothe troubling memories. Childhood trauma doesn't have to define you for the rest of your life. With this book as your guide, you'll be able to make fundamental changes and replace needless suffering with self-care, security, and contentment. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. 
For 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Help your clients achieve lasting emotional balance with the DBT Skills Mega Bundle from New Harbinger Publications. This essential collection offers everything you need to effectively deliver dialectical behavior therapy in your practice, including a set of eight exclusive microskills videos to help improve client motivation in treatment. Visit newharbinger.com for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider. And that's a wrap on season three. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in the summer with an all new season full of exciting interviews with leaders in mental health and well-being.